Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 19. So if you've got a pew Bible, Genesis chapter 3 is on page 5. And Danielle's going to read that for us. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are, all the, all, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. Well, it would be helpful, I think, if you have a Bible to turn it to Genesis 3, those verses that we read earlier, and we're going to look a little at the, the verses that come before that as well. Genesis 3, page 5 of the Pew Bibles. On uh, Christmas Eve 1918, 100 years ago, a special service was held for the first time in King's College Chapel in Cambridge. It was the service of nine lessons and carols. It wasn't the first time that particular format had been used. It was developed 30 years earlier in Truro Cathedral in Cornwall. But the one in Kings became particularly well known because 10 years after it began, 1928, it began to be broadcast by BBC Radio. And almost every year, I think they've missed one year, almost every year since and it has been broadcast on Christmas Eve. It's gone out on the world service. There are a, a hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who listen to this all across the world. And this year again, you can tune in to Radio 4 at 3 o'clock on Christmas Eve, and you will hear a carol service that in its format has basically been unchanged for 100 years. The, the, the service is structured in a particular way. There's no sermon. There's, there, there's a good reason to listen to it. There. Uh, you, you can uh, uh, know that, that you're not going to have a, a long sermon towards the end of it. But uh, the service is structured in such a way as to tell the Christmas story in the readings and in the carols. And each of the nine lessons recounts some part of uh, the story of Jesus' birth. Interestingly, it doesn't begin in Matthew or even in Isaiah, 
The first reading in the service of Nine Lessons and Carols is from Genesis. It's from the passage that we read today, Genesis 3. And maybe as you heard it read this morning, you thought, oh boy, I thought we were going to start Christmas, as it were. What's this got to do with Christmas? I hope as we look at it together today, you'll see that it's got everything to do with Christmas and with the good news of Jesus' birth. The particular verse that is of interest to us is Genesis 3.15. God is speaking to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity, hostility, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, some people have said this is the most important verse in the Bible after John 3.16, if we can ever begin to, to rank Bible verses. It's an incredibly important verse. Imagine that you have to do a, a long journey. You have to, to, to maybe complete a, a great long-distance trek, and you're able at the beginning of your journey to climb up on a high hill, and from that high vantage point, you're able to look at all that lies before you. You can see the twists and turns of your path as it heads off into the distance, and just in the distance on the horizon, you can see your destination. And, and, and in a sense, that's what this Bible verse is, right at the beginning of the Bible. It is a high vantage point from which the whole of God's rescue story can be seen. Well, as we survey the, the, the landscape that sort of spreads out in front of us and the path that spreads out in front of us from this verse, what is it that we see? I, I want to suggest four particular things uh, this morning, four significant features of the journey that the Bible will take us on from this point. And they are these. They're, they're very simple. There's a terrible rebellion. There's an enduring conflict. There's a costly victory. And there is, all through it, a gracious God. So let's think of these in turn. A, a, cost, a, a terrible rebellion. So this is, this is good news that's being announced right in the beginning of the Bible. Theologians call this the Latin word that proto-evangelium. It's, it's the first proto-evangelium, gospel. And the, the gospel means good news. So, so this is the first good news. But it is good news of a rescue. And as we were saying to the boys and girls earlier on, the very fact that, that a rescue is taking place or that is, is announced presupposes that something bad has happened. The blue lights are flashing here in this verse, as it were. And of course, this chapter of the Bible is incredibly important, and it tells us what has gone wrong. This is one of the most important parts of the, the Bible's whole story, indeed, of human history. It tells us why the world is the way it is. Maybe you're here today, and you are uh, skeptical of the Bible and, and the Christian message. Well, as you, you hear this, Maybe ask yourself, do you have a better explanation for what's going on in the world? So, for example, if, if, if we are to buy into the whole sort of idea of, of evolutionary materialism, it tells us that, that really as, as a species, we ought to be improving and getting better, evolving into something higher and stronger and better. But are we? it would seem that we're getting worse rather than better. 
Or, or, or maybe it would suggest to us that, that, that life is all about survival of the fittest. And, and perhaps that explains some of the terrible things that are going on around us, but it doesn't explain to us the sense that we have that it shouldn't be this way. The sense that we have that the weak should be protected and the vulnerable should be looked after. But, but this chapter tells us why things are the way they are. What does it say? Well, it tells us that Adam and Eve have been made by God. They've been put into this uh, wonderful environment. They're in Eden, a beautiful garden, in which they're able to be entirely fulfilled in everything that God has made and in which they're able to know God himself. He comes and walks with them. It's a picture of harmony and relationship. But, but they're, on, <clears throat> they're on trial, they're on probation, as it were, and, and Adam is told in, in chapter 2, verse 16, if you see it, the Lord commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And then we come to <clears throat> chapter 3, and we're introduced to the serpent. Now, clearly, something is very wrong, because this is a serpent who speaks. He is not just an ordinary snake, as it were. He is in some way representing Satan, God's great enemy, this fallen angel who is determined to destroy all that God has made. And the serpent comes and he tempts Eve. And first he calls into question God's word. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That's verse one of chapter three. Well, of course, that wasn't what God had said. God had said you can eat from any tree in the garden, very opposite of this, <clears throat> but there was one tree from which you could not eat. And so Satan trusts God's words and says you must not eat from any tree. And you see what his suggestion is. He's suggesting that uh, this God you have, Eve, he's uh, really mean, he's, he's restrictive, he's a bit of a spoiled sport. And that sounds very familiar, isn't it? God, well, God's just out to spoil our fun. Um, and we might not say that, but, but one of the ways in which sometimes people demonstrate that that is how they think is, is that they, they live their lives this way. They think, I'm going to have my time. I'm going to enjoy my life. I'm going to do the things I want to do. And uh, God, religion, stuff like that, well, that's for people as they get to the end of their lives. That, that's for us when our lives are over and we have to start to think about what happens next. And what we're saying, if we think like that, is that God is restrictive. He's out to spoil my fun. I'll have my fun. Then I'll think about him. Well, Eve begins to make a terrible mistake, and she enters into dialogue with this serpent, and she responds, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, Eve actually adds a little to what God has said. Touching it wasn't mentioned, and, and it looks like there is a little bit of resentment here on Eve's part. She's getting sucked in, you see, to the serpent's suggested view of God. He's, he's keeping something good from you. She starts to believe it. And the serpent presses further. You, you will not surely die, the serpent says to the woman. So he, he denies God's judgment and he tells her that life without God in charge will be better. When you eat from it, he says, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And she eats and she gives some to Adam. You wonder what Adam has been doing. He 
has clearly been mutely standing by as the serpent beguiles his wife. He had a, a leadership function that he was not exercising. <clears throat> and you see then the effects of sin and rebellion. This is where we picked up our reading today. Adam and Eve are now marked by individual and personal shame. This is, this is the beginning of the mental health crisis, isn't it? They... they, they, they hopelessly try to, to fix themselves and, and, and hide from each other. And they, they hide from God. And God confronts them and, and they, they blame each other and they blame God and everything is just broken. Presbyterians uh, sometimes, and others too, uh, sometimes refer to, to uh, the way God was working in the garden, and, and they talk about the covenant of works, uh, an agreement by, by which God says uh, effectively to, to Adam and Eve, do this and you will live. If you obey, you'll be blessed. And they had every reason to obey, of course, but if they were to disobey, there would be consequences. There would be curses. You will surely die. And, and, and so God pronounces now the, co the consequences of their covenant breaking. He pronounces judgment first on the serpent and then on the woman and then on the man. So, so this is all the, the background and the context to Genesis 3.15, there is a terrible rebellion. This is the whole backstory to the gospel story. There's then an ongoing conflict. Because we get to the verse itself now, God is pronouncing judgment on the serpent, really on, on Satan. And, and as he does so, he says these words, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, this is not to explain to us why many of us find snakes unpleasant, though it is interesting that we do. God is talking here about, so as we stand on this mountaintop and we look forward into human history, into today, he is talking about the fact that there will be two tribes, as it were, who will be at war, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent or the seed, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. Now, now, who are these offspring? Well, seed is, is one of those interesting words. Offspring's the same. It can be singular or plural. You can have one seed or a pile of seed, and it's still that singular word. Offspring is the same. And, and, and both singular and plural are in mind here. In, in this part of what we're thinking about, we're thinking of it in its plural sense. There are going to be many offspring of this woman. Now, they're not necessarily literal offspring. It refers to the people of God. God gathers his people to himself. He forms a people. They are his own. Uh, we belong, if we're here today, we belong to the seed of the woman if we're trusting Jesus Christ. But there's also the seed of the serpent, Again, doesn't refer to literal offspring. They are the people who are opposed to God, who are strangers to God, and therefore who are under the banner of the evil one in some way or another. They, 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 they ape some of his characteristics in that they, they want to live a life independently from God. So Jesus, for example, says to the Pharisees on one occasion, you belong to your father, the devil, 
and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees and saying, you're just showing forth your family likeness. Now, there's a great dividing line, therefore, and this chapter is telling us of this. There is a great dividing line running through the story of the Bible in that it is saying that through all of humanity, there are two groups of people. There is the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, and there is hostility between them. This is part of the reason why week after week, we are able to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in many parts of the world. And as we stand on this mountaintop verse and we look forward, we see it has always been like this. God has always had his people who are rescued out of the great mass of humanity that is opposed to him. As one writer says, God ensures that there will never be, that there will be a never broken line of fighters against the serpent. Let me, let me say that again. A never broken line of fighters against the serpent. That's what we're part of if we're Christians today. That's what we're called to. That's why our lives can be hard. That's why if you're living for Jesus, you feel sometimes like an outsider in the world. You're a fighter against the serpent. An ongoing conflict. But then there is a costly victory because the seed also refers to an individual. It refers to a people, but it also refers to an individual. God promises that one will come from the woman who will undo what has just been done. He will crush the serpent. The promise is of a man, he. He is human because he is the seed of the woman. But isn't there too the hint that he's going to be greater than the man because he will defeat man's enemy, the, the one who's just defeated Adam and Eve, he will defeat? Who could this be? Who is man and yet greater than man? When will he come? Now, now it's interesting that, that, that it seems that Eve thinks that her firstborn is the fulfillment of this promise. You see in chapter 4, verse 1, if you flick over the, the page, she gives birth to Cain. And, and, and it says there that she is full of joy. With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Eve, she thinks, Eve thinks that, that Cain is the one that God has spoken about. But he's not. In fact, he turns out to be on the side of the serpent and he murders godly Abel. So Eve was right to look for a baby, but, but not that one. That was not the seed, you see, who would put all things right. Later on, Abraham was promised that through his seed, all nations would be blessed. It's actually the second reading in the service of lessons and carols from King's College. Four of the seven lessons are from the Old Testament, as if to say, one is coming, one is coming, one is coming. And this theme is kept before us. Many rescuers rise up for God's people, and, and very often they, they crush the heads of their enemies, or they trample them under feet. So, for example, think of the story of David and Goliath. 
You might want to read it sometime and think of these themes. Our attention is drawn as we think of the story of, of David and Goliath to the armor that Goliath is wearing. He is wearing bronze scale armor. That's what it's called in the NIV. Individual little plates. What does he look like? He looks like an enormous what? Snake. And what happens to him? Well, David, the, the humble, vulnerable shepherd rescuer, takes him on. How does he do that? He hits him with a stone from the sling. Where does the stone hit him? It hits him on the forehead. And in one of those gory bits of the Bible, sorry if you're a little bit sensitive here today, but it says that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. Well, if, you're, if your stone sinks into your forehead, what's happened to your head? Your head is crushed, isn't it? So here's the great snake, Goliath crushed by God's chosen rescuer. And not only that, we read that David cuts off his head. And when, when, when it says that, that David went up to him, it says David ran and stood over him. What does that imply? It implies he, he, he stands over, presumably he puts his foot on him. He crushes the snake under his feet. And it's as if to say, look, look at this. Don't forget that the seed of the woman will, will crush the, the seed of the serpent, the head of the serpent. Hang on. One of the themes that runs right through the, 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 the Bible is how Satan tries to stop the seed of the woman from coming. Uh, think of what happens as the people of God are slaves in, in Egypt. The, the midwives are, are terribly ordered to kill the baby boys that are born. Now, you can see that that's a good strategy in some ways uh, on the part of the Egyptians to keep the population down. But it's a strategy of Satan, isn't it? To stop the seed of the woman arriving. But he cannot stop the plans and purposes of God. Because one day, much later, as we will celebrate, a baby is born. It's a boy. He's, he's born to a young woman. He's the seed of the woman. It's an odd way to, start to talk about seed, isn't it? Seed of a woman. When it comes to matters of reproduction... Seed is often associated with the male. But not here. There's something different about this birth. What is it? Well, the man's not involved. God is involved by the Holy Spirit. As the angel says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So this boy is human. He is the, he's the seed of the woman. But he's also divine because he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's the one who has come to crush the serpent's head. How will he do it? Well, what does our verse say? He shall uh, crush your head. He shall bruise your head and you shall uh, strike his heel. Bruise his heel. The, 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 the seed of the woman, you see, will not come out of this encounter unscathed. You think of how Jesus Christ was bruised. He was bruised in the lowliness of his birth, wasn't it? Oh, oh we will sentimentalize it at Christmas, but, but he steps from the realms of glory into a, a stable. 
He was bruised in his flight to Egypt as a refugee. He was bruised in the rejection and misunderstanding of the people. He is bruised in the opposition of the religious leaders. He's bruised in the betrayal and the desertion and the denial of his disciples. He is bruised, quite literally, in the beatings at his arrest and trial. And he is supremely bruised as he is taken and nailed to a cross where he dies. But in all of this, he is only bruised. His heel is bruised. For he conquers and he rises and he's alive forevermore. And as his heel is struck, is bruised, so the head of the snake is crushed. You think of how a snake would strike. It would, it would slither up, it would strike out. But as it does so, it puts itself in that dangerous position And the natural thing for someone to do is to stamp on it. And as it strikes out, its head is crushed. So Straton strikes out at Jesus. He thinks he has filled him full of deadly venom as he strikes his heel. But there and then he is crushed and defeated. And what we have now are his death throes. He is lured in. And that very blow that makes him think that he has won is the very thing that is his defeat. You see, that's our God. This is how he triumphs all the way through. Jesus is the victorious serpent crusher. A victorious serpent crusher. A costly victory. That's part of what we see from our landscape view. Last thing, just in a word. We see a gracious God, don't we, through all of this? You see, we say it in the, the garden that God dealt with Adam and Eve through what we call the covenant of works. But now he announces a, a different mechanism, dispensation by which to deal with us as people. The covenant, not of works, but of grace. God will take the initiative. God will give Adam and Eve and you and me what we do not deserve. And God will fit the bill. And do you see when all of this is announced? It is announced before judgment is pronounced on Eve and on Adam. (laughs) It's almost as if God can't wait to announce it. The judgment that must be pronounced comes after the Savior is announced. So you see how he loves even his rebellious people. And you see, God will do this. He will take the initiative. Do you see what this says about God's initiative taking? You notice it says, I will put enmity. What was the problem that Eve and Adam had in regard to the the serpent? Well, the problem was that they were not really at odds with the serpent. There was no enmity there. They were drawn to him. They were friends. They welcomed him. They welcomed his words. They welcomed his ways. Isn't that what we're naturally like? We want to go that way rather than God's. And graciously, God says, I will put enmity between the serpent and my people. Some of you will remember this as you made that journey to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how it worked for you. The things that once attracted you 
began to repel you. You wanted nothing more to do with them. You saw their emptiness and their futility. How had that happened? It wasn't just that you had a tremendous flash of inspiration. It wasn't because of your own great moral intelligence. No, no, God had put enmity between the serpent and us so that we would turn away from him and to the Lord Jesus Christ. We would never have wanted the Lord without that. We love him because he first loved us. So you see here, right at the beginning, at this very bleak moment when it looks as if Adam and Eve have brought the whole house tumbling down around them, God says, good news. Spurgeon calls these words the first gospel sermon ever preached on the surface of this earth. One will come to crush the serpent, and we may celebrate because he has. Christian brother and sister, you can face this week, this future in confidence because the Lord Jesus Christ has come to defeat the works of the devil. He has freed you from his grasp and he will keep you forever. Nothing can change that. His work is done. And if you're here today and you're not yet trusting Jesus, do you see that, that this Lord Jesus is not just, he's not just nice to have He's essential. There's, there's no fence to sit on with him. But do you find yourself here beginning to want to come to his side? Beginning to want to turn away from some of those things that, that once really drew you in? Maybe God's doing that. And the one who crushed the serpent bids you come. Let's pray together. Lord, Lord, we're just amazed that right at the beginning when everything went wrong, you were already putting everything right. You had already determined that your son would come and would have his heel bruised as he crushed the head of the serpent. We thank you that he has done this work. And we pray that we may know just how essential he is within our lives, that we might yield to him in every corner of our lives, that we might be those who invite others to him, that we might be those who trust him ourselves. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.